experience is a great teacher, isn't it? If we let it be, right? Experience can teach us a ton if we allow it to. A couple of years ago, my wife and I bought a new home in St. Louis Park, and the backyard, the people who owned it before us, they did a beautiful job of creating, we have this steep hill in our backyard, and they built like this tiered, like three different retaining wall flower garden, and they put annuals or perennials, I'm, I'm not a green thumb, so which, which are the ones that come up every year and you don't have to do anything to get them to come up? Perennials. So they have all these perennial flowers that every year, they just come up and they're beautiful and they have different blooming colors throughout the entire summer. It's amazing. And so our first year we moved in, we didn't really know this. And as the summer went on, all these flowers started coming up, but with the flowers came up a ton of weeds. And so we spent hours on hours weeding this beautiful flower garden in order to keep it beautiful that year. And we thought, mental note, next spring, before these things start coming up, we should lay that tart paper around where the plants were so that we don't have to spend hours on end weeding this garden, right? So next year rolls around, and we didn't do it. We got lazy. I don't know if we were lazy or if we just, you know, whatever. It, it happens. Um, and we went through that summer weeding hours on end weeding this flower garden to keep it the way that it was meant to be. Mental note, next year, put down that tart paper. Next year rolled around. We didn't do it. Year three, we spent hours on end weeding this garden. Mental note, next year, let's put tart paper down. And I'm here to tell you, last spring we put tart paper down and we reaped the rewards all summer long. It was amazing. We didn't have to do any weeding. We put it down, we mulched it, and all these flowers were coming up, and we could just sit there and look at them. We didn't have to go out and hands and knees, dig in the dirt all day, every day. And this spring, the, the plants are starting to come up, and I don't see weeds. It's amazing. Experience can be a good teacher for us, right? If we allow it to, if we let our experiences from the past inform our present and move us into the future. That's what Paul is doing here in our text for today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, really this whole letter, actually think of the Bible as like this, this manual to help you learn about life. All these stories, all these experiences, all this history from other people's lives, God interacting with people to help us understand how to interact with God and interact with the world. And so Paul, in a sense, is doing that specifically here in chapter 10. He's saying, I, I want you, church, he's writing to the, the church in Corinth in the first century, saying there's some things that you need to understand. A lot of these Christians are new Christians. Some of them were very steeped in Old Testament Jewish religion, and they have become believers of Jesus recently, and so they have all this religious tradition and baggage that they have to work through, and then others came through the, the pagan beliefs and the pagan systems, the pagan temples of Corinth, and so all of this was brand new to them. And Paul is saying, if you want to learn about how to interact with God and one another and how to, how to love God and love neighbor as Jesus called us to do, it's good to look back and to learn from the past. And so Paul in our text today is calling us into that. Let me summarize uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in this way. Paul uses Israel's history of idolatry to instruct the church about the nature of true worship, which is allegiance to Yahweh and love of neighbor. And so we're, we're going to look at just the first 22 verses this week, and we're going to talk primarily about allegiance to Yahweh. Yahweh is the revealed name of God in the Old Testament. I am that I 
M. It's whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in your English translations of the Bible, that's Yahweh, the very name of God. See, there were all these other nations and all these other gods, and God revealed himself to Israel and said, I am the God above all gods. I am the creator of all things. My name is Yahweh, and I alone am worthy of worship and praise. All these other false gods, all these other spiritual beings, they're demonic, and that's what Paul's getting into here. So, so the the, the call for you as the people of God is to worship Yahweh, to give him your allegiance, to give him your love. And a part of that, part of our worship of Yahweh, it's allegiance to him, and then it, it moves out into love for neighbor. And so Paul is, remember, Jesus taught that. He summarized all the Old Testament, that the point of the Old Testament, to, to distill it down and then to find your identity in Jesus, and your, now your mission in Jesus is to love God and love others as you as yourself. So that's the point. And, and Paul here in chapter 10, he's giving us reminders from the history of Israel to help us know what it looks like to love God, to, to, to give our allegiance to Yahweh, and to love neighbor. The first 22 verses, it's primarily focused on what it looks like to have allegiance to Yahweh, to worship Yahweh, to kill idolatry and to worship Yahweh. And then the last section of the chapter, which we'll look at next Sunday, has to do with loving neighbor and how these two relate. And so that's where we're going today. Today's passage calls us into this relationship with God where we are pledging our allegiance to him, but in that being reminded that he is faithful to us. This morning, as, as we sang, I was so touched by and needed to be reminded that God is faithful. That when we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And, and sandwiched in that song were all these songs about God's faithfulness. And I'm well aware of this myself, that I am prone to wander. I'm prone to wander after different different ideas, different interpretations, different theological traditions, different personality traits, different pastors, different hobbies, different passions. I'm, I'm prone to be distracted by the world. And remember, in the end of chapter 9, Paul calls us to run a disciplined life in allegiance to Yahweh. And so Paul here is reminding us as people of God that our allegiance is to Yahweh and that, that there are all these things in life and in our own soul that are, that are going to try to lead us astray, that we are prone to wander. And so we gather week in and week out and we scatter into homes to remind one another of God's faithfulness in the midst of our oftentimes unfaithful hearts and actions. And God remains. He's a covenant-keeping God. And so Paul here is reminding us of the covenant that God has made with his people and then how we as recipients of this covenant respond to God. Remember, he's addressing the church in, in, in Corinth who had written him a letter asking for his input on issues that they were dealing with. Uh, the first couple chapters had to do with leadership idolatry. The next few chapters had to do with sexual immorality. And now specifically in chapters 8 through 10, he's dealing with food sacrifice to idols and some idolatry of how that tied into idol worship. Again, the end of chapter 9, he instructs us to live a disciplined rather than a distracted life. I've, uh, I've ran a couple marathons, and I, I'm signing up to do another one this year, which last time I did a marathon, I, at mile 18, I started to just really struggle, and I was like, remember this feeling and never do this again. 
and I'm doing it again. So again, history, sometimes it's a good teacher, sometimes it's not. Maybe I'm just slow to learn. But in my training, I, I've had to learn, I've had to remember like what feels good, what helps me to run better, what helps me to, to accomplish the race. What, you know, if I eat this, I don't feel good. If I eat that, I feel good. If I sleep like this, I feel good. If I don't sleep, I don't feel good. This is part of the disciplined life of a Christian. What fosters my affection for Jesus and for his people? What helps me run the race of the Christian life well, and what distracts me? And Paul, specifically in this passage now, in chapter 10, he reminds the church of how God formerly dealt with idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. So that they wouldn't continue to trip over these issues. And he's going he's gonna to bring us into the history of Israel. He's going to show us some of their idolatry and, and how God dealt with their idolatry so that we could move into a greater future, so that this church in Corinth and then us 2,000 years later, so that we could run a more faithful life with Jesus. So Paul warns and instructs us. He gives us two reminders and, and one invitation in this passage. And so we're going to walk through it. Uh, the first couple of verses here, verses 1 through 4, they, they remind us, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church about Yahweh's provision for and presence with Israel in the wilderness days. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's, he's referring to the, the, the Israelite fathers and as they led the Israelites through the wilderness. They were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. This is a reference, and I'm not going to turn there, but if you are the type who likes to take notes and go back and look at this, it's in Exodus chapter 13 where, where God led his people Israel through the wilderness in a, in a pillar of fire. And so he's reminding them of that. That's your history. As people of God, you, you have some ancestors who God let out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, and he led them with this cloud of fire. And they passed through the sea. God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites passed through. That's, what's he, that, what, that's what he's reminding them of, that God was present with his people. He showed up in this cloud. He, he was there to part the sea. He protected his people. He provided for his people. And his very presence was with them. Unlike any of the other gods who were usually contained to temple worship or they, you know, they would create little statues known as idols that they would think would be a portal to worship this other god, which are demonic. That's what Paul goes on to say in this passage. But God, Yahweh, the one true God, the God above all other gods, is present with his people. He's there in a burning fire. He's, he, he's in the tabernacle. He's in the Ark of the Covenant. He's walking with his people. He's parting the Red Sea through his servant Moses. Verse 2. And he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's using this Old Testament reminder to connect it to, to this New Testament reality, this new covenant where in Corinth, you can read about this in Acts chapter 18, Paul moved into the city, he planted this church, people came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then he baptized them. And so he's using this imagery saying the same way that, that the cloud and the parting of the Red Sea was kind of like this catalyzing event for the community, for the Israelites, in a similar manner, your baptism is a catalyzing event for your community. You're saying, this is, these are my people, that is my God, I'm in. 
And so he says that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. This is a reference to manna in Exodus chapter 16 when God provided bread from heaven for them as they were wandering in the wilderness. And they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. In Exodus chapter 18, God provided water for them from a rock. And so Paul is reminding them of this, of this provision of God, of God's very presence with them, but then he's connecting it, again, like I said, to this New Testament reality where Jesus now comes and he says, I am the bread of life, I am the spiritual food. I am the manna from heaven. I am the living water. I am the rock upon which the church is built. Those, those Old Testament experiences were all pointing to this new covenant reality where God has manifested himself among his people in the person of Jesus and now he's given himself as a provision for you. He's reminding them of their privilege, right? Israel's privilege. When all the other nations were worshiping these false demonic gods and their gods were terrifying and and torturing, and their gods were also contained to these small little idols and spaces and buildings. This God is moving with them. This God is present and powerful and providing for their every need. They're privileged people to have a God who walks with them. And now in the New Covenant, New Testament reality, we're even more privileged because the Messiah has come. He was crucified in our place, overcame sin and death in the grave, and now he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's with us all the time. And so he's reminding them of this privilege. We have a privilege in the New Covenant, but he's starting by looking at the old privilege that they had in the Old Covenant. And then look at verse 5. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so we move into this next section here where Paul is reminding the church of Israel's idolatry. Israel worshipped idols, and they did what they wanted rather than worshipping Yahweh by doing what he wanted. So even though God was so present and powerful in providing for them in the wilderness, they continued to worship other gods, these false gods, these demonic gods, and they continued to do whatever their fleshly desires Wanted that verse, uh, that that word in verse five. Nevertheless, it's so striking. Coming out of verses one through four, where he's saying this was how God Yahweh was present with His people. Nevertheless, such a damning verse. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is a reminder to us. We live in in a culture where we often, you know, we like to talk about how God is pleased with us. We're going to talk about the gospel. He is pleased with us in Jesus Christ. That burden can be lifted. But God is also a relational God. And in relationships, if one person perpetually breaks the, 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 the ethics of those relationships, right? If one person is consistently going outside of the bounds of the agreement of the boundaries of that relationship or what is good and healthy for that relationship, the other person is going to be displeased. It's going to hurt them. It's going to bring fracture and conflict in the relationship. That's what happens here between God and his people. When we don't live disciplined lives that are submitted to God, 
when we're not striving to grow in our allegiance to God and, and when our true worship doesn't result in our allegiance to him and our love for other people, but instead it, it results in idolatry where we're worshiping other created things, beings. We're trying to find our identity, our provision, our protection in other things, other beings. We're doing what we want. That's when we fracture and hurt and damage our relationship with God and it doesn't please him. In verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So there's this idolatry of other gods, and there's also just this fleshly desire for what we want, right? Sometimes we just want what we want regardless of what God has to say about it. Even if he says, you know what, that's not, that's not good for you. Yet we're like, but I don't care. I want it. And so that's part of what Israel is going through here. And Paul's going to give us some examples. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We're going to take a few minutes and look at these examples. So flip over to Exodus chapter 32, 1 through 6 with me. Paul, in verse 7, is referencing this passage, and he's referencing the golden calf that the Israelites made when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. Exodus 32, 1 through 6, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people gathered themselves, he's up on the mountain interacting with Yahweh. There's lightning and smoke and thunder, and he's getting the revealed law of the Lord. And the people gathered. They're impatient. They don't trust their leader. They don't trust Yahweh, their God. They gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your, ear, in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What, what an offense. What a, what a lie. What a cheap imitation. What a, what a quick giving away of worship of somebody who had just led them out of slavery and who had provided for them, who had shown up in a cloud of smoke and parted the Red Seas. And now they have gold fashioned into a calf. And they rose up, uh, let's see, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is, this is where Paul takes that reference. And he's saying, remember how they were just they were just eating and drinking and playing at the foot of this false god that they worshipped when Moses was up on the mountain at the feet of Yahweh? This is, this is an offense. This is idolatry. It's when you give up on Yahweh for a cheap imitation of Yahweh. And then verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Moses references Numbers 25, 1 through 9. So flip over to that with me. Numbers 25, 1 through 9. It's on page 133 in the Pew Bible. And uh, let me just remind you what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 here. Verse 8 says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, 
and 23,000 fell dead in a single day. Striking passage. So here's what he's referencing. He's referencing Numbers 25, 1 through 9. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. See how it's lowercase g? It's, it's other Elohim, other spiritual beings, but they're demonic influences. They're not Yahweh, the one true God, worthy of our worship and praise. They're, they're these other spiritual beings that other nations are worshiping. And God had called Israel to fidelity to himself. Remember the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no, no other gods before me. And so, verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. See, there's this, there's this, infidelity happening where the people of God are, are yoking themselves, they're, they're aligning themselves to this false god, Baal of Peor. And, and there's sexual immorality as a part of this. There's temple worship of prostitution and sex before this god. And he's saying, this is, is not what I've called my people to. For one, you're breaking allegiance or fidelity to Yahweh. And then two, God also calls us to love neighbor. And they're not loving these pagan nations by aligning with their gods and sleeping with them. With their women, whoring with their daughters, right? That's what it says in verse 1. And so God actually cares about non-believers. He cares about the people outside of the covenant of Israel. And one of the ways that the people of Israel can be, a, can be a light to the surrounding nations is to keep their allegiance to Yahweh and to love their neighboring nations by not sleeping with or whoring with the daughters of those nations. And they're breaking the commandment. You're not loving God. You're not loving neighbor. And so there's a strict response from God in the Old Testament. It says his anger burned and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about this like is the god of the old testament different than the god of the new testament no i thought god was love would would a loving god really have this burning anger that would call these people to be hung in the sunlight verse six and behold one of the people of israel came and brought a midianite woman to his family in the sight of moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chambers and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. They're in a chamber having illicit sex, and the man drives a spear through both of them. If you think the Bible's boring, start reading it. This is, what is going on? Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says 23,000. Some people get really caught up on that. And they, in the Bible, they would often use generalities related to numbers. And so this, this is the story here. There's this infidelity. There's this worship of other gods tied to sexual immorality, temple worship. And, and it angers God. 
because it creates distance between him and his people, and it also is creating distance between him and the Moabites and the Midianites and, and what Israel is supposed to be, a representation of Yahweh to these other nations who are worshiping other gods. They are making a fool of Yahweh. They are giving Yahweh a bad name among these other nations. And so God says, I'm, I'm going to discipline my people. It's striking that, that he doesn't strike down dead the Midianites and the Moabites for this. He disciplines the Israelites. I've called you to, to, to show your allegiance to me and to love neighbor, and you're not doing that. And, and, I, and, and I need to bring you some really severe discipline. And so that's what happens in this story. And then chapter, uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go on to the next example. Verse 9, he says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And I love how Paul here is using these Old Testament stories and he's inserting Christ into it, right? We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent. There, there, there is this Godhead that when you offend Yahweh, when you commit idolatry against Yahweh, you are also offending his son Jesus and committing adultery against Je- idolatry against Jesus. So in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's referring back to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Let's look at that. Numbers 21, 4 through 9, just a couple pages to the left. He says, From Mount Hor they went out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and so many of the Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have sinned against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Isn't this just fascinating? What a a crazy story. Do you see, like, the complaining hearts, just the human nature in these people? God's delivered them out of slavery— He's providing for them his presence in in physical provision, spiritual provision, physical provision in the wilderness, and they're complaining. We don't like this worthless food. It's not as tasty as the food that we had in Egypt when we were in slavery. I'm sick of manna from heaven. I'm sick of water from a rock. I want some Kool-Aid. And they're just, they're quick to complain, they're quick to doubt. They, 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 they struggle to trust God. And so God, in his love, he disciplines them by sending serpents to bite them and kill them. And it works. Right? I mean, they, 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 they realize we've sinned against Yahweh. And they, they repent. Moses, would you go talk to Yahweh for us? And he does. And God says, Here, here's the solution. Create this snake, put him on a pole, and when somebody looks at that snake, they will be healed. What a fascinating story. And and I want to pause right here, because these are some really heavy stories, right? We're seeing about God's anger, God's judgment, God's discipline. I want you to keep in mind and notice that when God does this, in these stories, it's leading them to repentance, right? 
It's leading them to say, we've done something wrong. We've offended Yahweh. We've broken our allegiance to Yahweh. We haven't loved our neighbors. They appeal to God for help. They appeal to God for salvation. God gives them a way out. And, and right here, this is just an incredible, I'm going to give you a quick, I wanted to save this for the end to lead us into communion, but I'm going to give it to you now, and then we've got a little more work to do in the text. So this passage right here with the serpent lifted up on the snake, listen to how Jesus talks about this. In John chapter 3, verse 14, you can look at it on page 888 in the Pew Bible if you would like to. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and this is the passage about being born again. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 14, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is Jesus using that event. Paul warns them about that event, about the holiness, the judgment of God, but also the grace of God that he provides a way out for people who break allegiance to him and don't love neighbors well. And it's Jesus lifted up on the tree, on the cross. Do you see how Jesus does this? That's the gospel. That's the good news. That when we break our promises to God, when we break allegiance, when we whore after other gods, whether that's like actual demonic worship or whether that's just us putting things before God, the creator, if we're looking for provision or satisfaction or, or fullness in the presence of another person or another thing or another toy, God provides a way for eternal life. Jesus lifted up on the tree, and, and this leads into some well-known verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's, God's anger and, and justice and judgment and discipline in the Old Testament or in the New is to lead us back to that place where we look up at the bronze serpent on the pole or where we look up at Jesus the Christ on the tree and we're reminded of God's grace for us, that he put the penalty of our sin upon Jesus and lets us go free. Amen, church family? And so that's what, that's what Paul is reminding the church about. He's, look at these severe stories. And, and you should have some holy fear and some holy trembling before God that this stuff is serious. That idolatry, that sexual immorality, and that grumbling is serious. Sometimes the church does a really bad job because we make a big stink about sexual immorality. But what about grumbling? Right? God sends snakes to kill the grumblers. Jesus is killed now for the grumbling. And so stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Stop, stop. Stop making a fool of God by treating one another unlike Jesus. There's one more example that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians, 10 chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says, Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. So I already talked about grumbling. There's another story. Let's look at it quickly just so we make sure we cover all of our bases here. Numbers 11, 1 through 3. And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. 
Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down so that the name of that place was called Tiberah because the fire of Yahweh burned among them. See, sometimes the very thing that you and I need to draw us back to the Lord is, is some snakes or some hangings or some fire. Now, that's, that's metaphorically, right? That, that was Old Testament reality, but we live in a new covenant where, where God's MO is not to discipline us in that way, but it's to point us back to Jesus, the one who was punished in that way, in our place, on our behalf. And so Paul, he tells us, let's keep moving. We're almost done. Stick with me for a couple more minutes. Let's close out this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He moves then from those examples, from those stories, into the last part where he's warning the church to learn from Israel's mistakes to flee from temptation, to kill idolatry, and to enjoy participation in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 11. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's clear as day. God did this to Israel as an example. Also, this is just the relational collateral damage. When you break relational agreements with somebody else, there is consequence. And because Israel had broken relational agreement, relational fidelity, relational allegiance to Yahweh, there was consequence. And God, in his loving goodness, he was using these consequences, these disciplines, to ultimately turn them back to him, the source of life. And so Paul says, these happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Verse 12, it's, it's such a good reminder. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you're doing good, if you think you're in allegiance to God, if, you're, if you think that you have no idolatry and you are hunky-dory, be careful. Our hearts are seductive. We're prone to wander. So keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep striving to pledge your allegiance to Yahweh and to love neighbor. And he says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I love this, this, this pairing of, God, of Paul warning them, right, about God's discipline, and then God's faithfulness, right? It's like a warning and a promise together. God is faithful. He will hold you. He will keep you but he may discipline you to do so if you're not disciplining yourself, like you just said in the end of chapter 9, that we must discipline our bodies as we run after Christ. And so he says, you will not be tempted in a, in a way not common to man. Um, you will not be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A lot of ink has been spilt on this passage and people like just wanting an easy way out in moments of temptation. This is long, hard work of being embodied in a community of encouraging one another to look to Jesus, of encouraging one, or, one another to run the race day in and day out when our, when our flesh is failing and our minds are weak and our hearts are dull and our ears are hard and our feet are heavy. We remind one another day in and day out, keep running, keep running, brother, keep running, sister. God is faithful, God is faithful. I know you've been unfaithful again. I know you're questioning it, but God is faithful, God is faithful. 
getting out of temptation means being in a community that is encouraging you in what's good and right and true and lovely. And it means the discipline of bathing yourself in God's word and singing God's praises. It's not just like in a moment of temptation. If you haven't been doing those things, you will give in to a moment of temptation because you don't have a, a spiritual base of a community and a, and a substantial faith to help you walk through that temptation. And so we learn how to overcome temptation by striving after Jesus together. And then he moves into this closing part where this is the invitation where he's inviting us to the table. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And remember in this setting, there was part of this conversation, we'll talk more about this next Sunday, there's, there's meals eaten, to, eaten at temples, sacrificed to other idols, and so there's some of that reality here where he's trying to help them understand that they can't, they can't eat food in a temple while sacrificing it to a demon and worshiping a demon. They're allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols. That was, we talked about that two weeks ago. He's saying, I want you to be really careful about entering into a temple and eating that meal in the temple in a worship setting to a pagan god. Verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I, I love that little out. Judge for yourselves what I say. If, if you think this picture of God is just too mean and judgmental, and you've you got you to figure that out. You've got to judge for yourselves. Don't, don't trust a pastor. Don't trust an interpretation. Wrestle with God's word in your relationship with him and try to figure this out. Make a judgment for yourself. And then verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one. There's this incredibly diverse makeup in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're all drawing from the one same substance, Jesus, the bread of life. The one who, before he was crucified, sat with his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat it. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink it. This is the sign of your allegiance to Yahweh. Take it and eat it. Don't associate with idols. Don't get caught up in idol worship and demonic worship. And, and don't give in to the idols of your heart or the evil desires of your flesh like he said in verse 6. Come and drink and eat the spiritual substance of Christ. He says, for we all partake of one bread. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do I imply, why do I imply then? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Remember, he's already taught us idols are nothing. They're simply made with human hands. But there's some demonic presence in it. So be careful with them. Verse 20, he says, no, I imply that the pagan sacrifices, sacrifice, the sacrifices they offer to demons are not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So there's this warning and this encouragement. Don't worship other gods. Kill your idolatry. Flee your temptations. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't look to other things to fill your soul. Don't break your allegiance to Yahweh. And don't mistreat your neighbor. 
That's, that's demonic. Don't, don't commit sexual immorality. Don't give in to the cravings and the desires of your flesh. That's demonic. Instead, come to the table of the Lord, you his people, and be reminded of his covenant. Be reminded of Jesus lifted high on the cross, the one who, when we gaze at him, we receive salvation. Amen? And so together, I want to take communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter your denominational background or your different theological leanings. If you can say that Jesus is your Lord, and you're striving to walk with him, these elements are here to remind you that you are saved by the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus. So pull out that top layer, take that cracker, and as you pull it out, Try to envision Jesus sitting with his disciples, this diverse group of people. And he passes this bread around and he says, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat. Let's eat together. And when they had finished eating the bread, he took the cup and he passed it around to this diverse group of people. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. God, I thank you that you are holy, that you are unlike us, and yet you've made yourself accessible to us. You've given us your presence. You've given us spiritual and physical provision. Lord, we are not so much unlike the Israelites. Lord, we are prone to wander. I'm prone to wander. I feel it. I'm prone to break my allegiance to you. I'm, I'm prone to not love neighbor. I'm prone to idolatry in many different forms. God, I thank you for not judging me, disciplining me in the same way that you judge and discipline the Israelites. Lord, may we look to these examples for instruction so that we would continue to receive the better way that you've made for us in Jesus Christ. You are holy. And now as we stand and sing, may we be reminded of that truth together. Would you stand and sing with us as we close out this morning?